don't just assume your kids want to inherit your business. Yeah. And sometimes the best thing you can do for your family is set up a structure where you can sell the business after you pass away or before you pass away and leave the, the money to the kids to do their own thing with it. Right. But you've got to think about it and you've got to plan for it. And if you don't, that's where all of the family dynamics get blown to hell. Right. That's where siblings hate each other. That's where lawsuits start. We've seen a number in this town, and I'm sure every other town in America where families just get ripped to shreds because a business got in the way of a family. Welcome to the Fort Podcast. I'm Chris Powers, and on this show, I talk to some of the most fascinating minds in business and discuss important topics in the worlds of real estate, entrepreneurship, investing, and more. To learn more, visit thefortpod.com. That's thefortpod.com. I just got done recording uh, with a good friend of mine, Ryan Heath, who is an estate planning lawyer that I have done a lot of work with and learned a ton from. Uh, Estate planning is super interesting and has a lot of benefits to how families look at passing on assets, how businesses transfer. And so we talk about all that today. A lot of entrepreneurs listen to this, a lot of folks that have assets or wealth that will one day transfer listen to this. And so we go through the nuances of best practices for just getting started. If you haven't started an estate plan, We talk a lot about how family governance and how families set up trusts and ways that assets move from one generation to the next. We talk about cool things that Ryan's seen along the way and how some families have chosen to handle different situations. Then we talk a lot about uh, business succession planning and what that looks like for entrepreneurs that have not thought about that yet. And then we talk about the different levels of wealth that a family might be uh, looking at and different things to consider, uh, depending on how much wealth is there. And we finish it up with how you can use trust as an investment vehicle to accomplish goals. So thanks for continuing to listen. I think you're going to love this show. Hey, guys, if you're not following Fort Capital on LinkedIn, I would. In a prior ad, I talked about our newsletter but LinkedIn is just as good, except these are in real time. We post weekly, sometimes daily. We talk about career opportunities, information on our latest acquisitions and dispositions, updates across the Fort team, our latest real estate-focused podcast episodes, our most recent content pieces. Stay up to date with the number one fastest-growing private real estate company in Texas by following Fort Capital on LinkedIn. Ryan, welcome to the show. Thanks, Chris. I'm excited to be here. Ryan and I are good friends, and he has educated me a ton on estate planning, which can be an exciting topic and something that I think a lot of folks, if they're at a place in life where it's something they should be thinking about, can be very valuable to what they have for them and for their family. So I'm just really excited to dig in and learn more about estate planning. I posted it on Twitter. There was like hundreds of comments. So apparently there's more people that are also excited. So thanks again. Yeah, you bet. Death and taxes is always exciting to discuss. <laughs> right? All right. Let's really start with your background. Tell us just a little bit about you and how you got into this and why it's where you decided to really focus your career. Yeah, I, I kind of back ended my way into estate planning, not from Texas originally, grew up on the Mississippi Gulf Coast. My My dad and my stepmom both had small family businesses. So it 15, I was working for the family meat market, uh, <laughs> cleaning meat saws in the meat freezer on weekends and and also doing like furniture installation during the summer. So kind of got my first taste of entrepreneurship that way. 
went to LSU for undergrad and got my degree in business management. But ultimately, the job market was pretty bad when I got out in, in, in 2011. So I decided to go to law school just kind of on a whim and, and quickly realized that I did not want to be fighting all the time, which is what <laughs> a lot of lawyers do, or at least that's the stereotype, right? And so I, I stumbled into this estate planning internship during the summer, and I loved it. I was putting things together. Every family situation was different. It was unique and and just fell in love with it and and so from there finished law school worked for for two firms in the dfw area and kind of cut my teeth in more of the high so i would say ultra high net worth estate planning realm but that entrepreneurship spirit drove me back to starting my own firm in january of 2020 which as we all know is a <laughs> awesome time to start a law firm and so our firm's Baker Heath. There's four attorneys now. Two of us do estate planning, trust administration, and probate. And the other attorney does corporate law, everything from formations of, of new business entities to M&A work. So it's kind of a small firm with big firm experience. And that's kind of our, our model, I guess. I love it. All right. Let's start from like the most basic. What is the most basic time that anybody could do just something and maybe we can start with the question of what are the six primary estate planning documents? But some people think, oh, I need to be really rich to have an estate plan, or I need to have done this, or I need to have a business. I kind of want to start with like, is there something that anybody on this planet should be doing? Yeah. I mean, really, to your point about the six documents, everyone should have the six basic estate planning then documents. Let's hear those. And they're not that expensive. And they end up saving costs later down the road. Okay. So everyone needs a will, right? Just real basic, who's going to be in charge of your estate and who gets your property. And then we kind of shift gears then and talk about lifetime planning. What happens if we're in an accident, right? Who's going to step in and make medical financial decisions for us? And so on that end, there's a financial power of attorney for financial decision making. There's a medical power of attorney for medical decision making. You also need a HIPAA authorization. So if you're hospitalized, who can call and get access to information? There's a declaration of guardian, which could be for you if a court decides that you need a guardian to take care of you permanently. Could also be for minor kids, right? Who's going to take care of our minor children if, if, if both parents pass away? And then there's a directive to physicians, which is an end of life, pull the plug or don't pull the plug document. So those six documents regardless of net worth, regardless of place in life. If you're an adult and have more than just a bank account, then you should have those documents. Is there a typical answer to some of those on who makes those decisions? Is it usually another family member? Is it a best friend? Like, How do you tell your clients or what guidelines do you give your clients on how to pick these people that are making huge decisions on their behalf if they're injured or incapacitated or have loss of memory or anything like that? For for married couples, it's it's relatively easy, right? Because it's usually going to be spouse in both of those roles. And then we're looking at what happens if you and spouse are in a common accident, then who's making those decisions? And usually, you know, I like to defer to family, at least on on medical decision making, if there's someone in the family that we trust. And in financial, again, I'm probably going to lean towards family first, but sometimes we just don't have family members that can do those things. Yeah. And if that's the case, it's just really someone that you trust trust financially for those financial decisions and on the medical side that you not only trust, but you've communicated with like, here's what I would want to happen in these various scenarios. Yep. So I think family is a great starting point, but family's not for everyone. 
for those that don't have family members, then I think we lean towards close friends, people that live close to us. And if none of those work, we've got corporate options, banks, and other folks that'll serve in those roles. Okay. Okay. We were just talking about this. You just had your beautiful daughter, Gigi. Yes. You are an estate planning attorney that knows everything about the estate planning world. I think an interesting spot to kind of kick off this conversation is what did you do for your child and and what is something that a lot of listeners here having kids or have kids could start doing early on in life despite their financial situation? Yeah, so the, so the planning we did when Gigi was born was kind of twofold. One was getting our house in order, right? But second, also kind of planning for for Gigi's future. And so so we ended up setting up a revocable trust for for my wife Lorna and I. And really that was set up so that if we were to pass away before Gigi's 30 or 35 years of age, uh, her inheritance would pass in a trust with someone else in charge of that money until she gets a little bit older, a little bit more mature. And also what we left in that inheritance for her is protected from spouses in the future, protected from lawsuits and has some estate tax benefits. And so some of the fun things I guess that we did is we put a prenup requirement in the in the trust. So it says that that when Lorna and I pass away, Lorna's my wife, when we both pass away before Gigi can get distributions from the trust, she has to get a marital property agreement in place saying that everything from that trust is her separate property. So it kind of takes the burden off of her having to ask for one by saying, look, we have access to this bucket of money, but you've got to sign this document first. Interesting. And so I really like that one. And I think a lot of folks that have young kids, especially our generation where we've seen divorce probably more frequently than prior generations. Yeah. I think that's an interesting thing to do. So that was. So basically you're taking the burden off of her having to ask her spouse, which can be very awkward. And you're basically taking the blame that like, yeah, my dad made me do this. That's right. Yeah. Kind of dangling the carrot saying, hey, you can get access to these, you know, this trust fund, but you got to sign this paper first saying that if we, if things don't work out, it stays with me. Okay, so that that spouse still has to sign something. Correct. Still have to sign something, but it's but it's, it's not something that she conjured up. It's something that you had. Correct. And if that person doesn't sign, we have the ability to stop distributions to to Gigi or the person in okay. charge of her trust. They don't have to, but we'd probably rearrange things a little bit, create separate accounts, and, and do things a little differently if that if that happened to be the case. What else did you do for Gigi? The other thing we did for for Gigi that I really like, and it goes back to the entrepreneurial spirit side of me, is we set up an irrevocable trust for Gigi, and and we gifted some money into that trust, and we turned around and invested the funds in things like Fort Capital deals, actually, and some hard money loans out of New Jersey and New York. And the game plan for that money is to, is that it's going to be invested and reinvested and allowed to grow until she gets 18, 20 years old, and she'll have a nice uh, nest egg of money, again, asset protected from spouses and creditors. But that money can be used for anything. It's not a 529 plan that's only available for college expenses, right? It can be used for buying a first house, for wedding expenses, for college, or it can just be maintained for future investments. And, And one of the really important things for me is that I, so I grew up of, so like I mentioned earlier in Mississippi, I had no exposure to alternative investments other than just stocks, bonds, mutual funds. That's all I knew growing up. And so when I stepped into the estate planning world and got exposed to private equity deals and 
and, and hard money loans and all these different types of investments, I realized how behind the curve I was. And I don't want Gigi to be behind the curve. So one of the interesting things about this gift trust that we set up for her is that as she gets older, we have the ability to sit down with Gigi, say when she's 18, 19 years old, show her the subscription documents that Fort Capital sends us, show her what we're looking at to decide whether or not we want to invest in this specific deal, and then make the investment with her, right? Uh And so it's a great learning tool for her. And it's also, again, growing a nest egg for her that'll be protected and can be used for various reasons in the future. And is that a plan that you can stamp out when you have possibly future children? Or do you take every, because every child comes in there, you don't even really, they don't have a personality yet. You don't know what's going to happen. So do you kind of start with the same template for each child as they come into the world? Or would there be any reason why you might do something different with baby number two than baby number one? Yeah, for for my particular situation, I set up a trust just for Gigi. And if we have future kids, we'll do separate trusts for them. I think from a cost perspective, right, for me, it doesn't cost anything because I'm preparing the documents. For a lot of my clients, what I tell them is, let's just set up one trust. That's what's called a pot trust. Yeah. So all of the kids just share in this common investment fund, right? Or combination of funds. And then once the youngest reaches age 23, maybe, or something, you know, similar to that, we split it in a separate trust. Got it. The reason why we split it at at age 23 or around there is that by then the kids kind of have separate needs. And so if sibling one takes a distribution, it impacts sibling two. And so we want to try to avoid that fighting by splitting the trust into separate ones at that time. And real quick, just for clarification, then I want to get back to family. What's the difference between revocable and irrevocable trust? So other than just the terminology, right? Revocable means that you can change the trust over time. Irrevocable means that once you sign it, it's kind of set in stone. Okay. Right. But but practically speaking, what's the difference? A revocable trust is really just a substitute for a will. Okay. That's really the, there's no real asset protection in a revocable trust. There's no spousal protection and there's really no estate tax savings in a revocable trust. For your irrevocable trust, those that aren't able to be changed, they're going to have asset protection benefits. They're going to have estate tax benefits. And the trade-off is that you can't necessarily change and modify it as easily over time. Okay. And if somebody's thinking about somebody that doesn't have a lot of knowledge, who's guiding them towards which one they should do? Is that is that what you're doing or should they have consulted with somebody? How do they know which one is is best to to do? Yeah, I, I think I think the best route to go is to meet with an estate planning attorney first. OK, financial advisors, accountants, they've got broad knowledge of these things. But I think when it comes down to the recommendation of what makes sense, probably best to have an estate planning attorney look at it. And it's not an either or scenario, right? We have a revocable trust, Lorna and I do, for our personal assets that will eventually funnel down to Gigi. And then we have an irrevocable trust that's really going to be used for her benefit during our lifetime before we pass away. We're going to spend some time on the family because I got young kids and I think a lot of listeners have young kids. Yeah. Okay. So you set up the initial estate plan when Gigi's born. But then you're going to have years before you kind of start figuring out who your daughter really is and what she likes and where she's going. You're going to be making more money or less money. Who knows what's going to happen? Some of the, I guess, the, the friction around estate planning is like you're always doing it. 
what are some major milestones or how do you think about like when are times to revisit the plan? Yeah. So I think we generally say every three to five years, dust off your summary document and just make sure the people you name to serve in financial and medical decision-making roles are still the ones you'd want to serve, right? I think a lot of times as as young adults in our first estate plan, we name parents as our backups a lot of times. And then as the kids get older, they migrate into taking those roles over from the from their grandparents. Okay. Right. But I think when the kids get to an age where you can start to sense, are they going to be financially capable of managing money? Right. That's a good time to kind of revisit the plan. If you notice a kid can't yeah. manage money, that's a huge issue, right? We really need to get out in front of that. I think when kids start to get close to marriage, that's another time to revisit things. And then I think ultimately when you have grandkids, I think there needs to be a pretty big sit down meeting to think, do we want to leave everything to the kids? Do we want to split it among kids and grandkids? Do we want to do college funding for the grandkids? Right. So that's kind of that ultimate stage. So I think the estate plan is kind of a living breathing thing that has to evolve over time because your life does. Yeah. But but I think the big milestones are there's kind of a a plan when you first start out when you have minor kids. And we want to just review that to make sure all the roles we have, guardian designations, all those things are correct and still the right people. And then as the kids get out of high school in the college years, that's probably the next like major revision piece because they're probably going to start serving in medical and backup medical decision making roles for you at that point. Is there any trusts? I've never really never when you think of these trusts, you think of kids or that are becoming adults before it really impacts them. Is there anything in some of the trusts that you've seen where it impacts them when they're in elementary school or middle or high school? Or is it generally not till 18 and over? Yeah, I mean, it's generally not going to be until they're they're adults. Okay. Certainly there's always the risk that parents pass away prematurely, right? And then the kids inherit something. I think really the key is to have flexibility in your estate plan documents, right? So like some examples that I can give you are are that we have provisions about substance abuse, right? So if a, if a beneficiary, typically a child, right, is struggling with alcohol addiction, drug abuse, mental health issues, we're going to have ways to require drug testing or send them to rehab and pay money on their behalf, but we're not going to put cash in a kid's pocket that has a heroin addiction, right? We want to avoid that. And so that's one way that we can build flexibility in the estate planning documents to adapt to things that may happen in the future. Yep. And that's where I think finding a good estate planning attorney can really make a difference because flexibility is key, right? If if we build enough flexibility in the documents, it should be able to evolve through all the various situations without having to be changed consistently. Okay. You said can versus can't manage money. Managing money is not easy. And it's really not easy if you come from a wealthy family and you've never even had to really make money. I mean, I think odds would show that there's often very wealthy kids that grow up and money's just always around. And so it's not that they can't, it's they've really never been taught to. Right. How are trusts set up to where if somebody can manage money, maybe it's set up X way. And if they can't, it's set up X way. Well, in so in any trust, you've got a division or a separation between the trustee, which I refer to as the manager of the trust, and the beneficiary, the person that gets the distributions, right? The benefits of the trust. So if you've got a really financially savvy, capable child or grandchild, 
they can be the manager of their trust as well, right? They can make the investment decisions and the distribution decisions and, and really play an active role in managing the money for their own benefit. Yep. That's probably the most similar to like getting something outright, yep. right? As a gift through inheritance, if they can be their own trustee and the beneficiary of their trust. When we have a scenario where a kid's a spendthrift, right, is the way we refer to it in estate planning, I meaning that they're not able to manage money well. They spend it pretty. They spend it, <laughs> yeah, not very thrifty. Yeah. When that happens, we're usually going to want a different manager or trustee of their trust. Okay. Someone else that can manage the financial side of things and make distribution decisions for that child. And that can be multiple people or or banks. So. Some folks tend to, to name a friend, right? Their thought is, well, I'll name my, my best friend because I trust him or her and, and he or she knows the family well, so that's a great choice. Well, talk to that friend first because being a trustee or an executor is a ton of work and oftentimes the client doesn't realize it because all the work kicks in after they die, yeah. right? The other option is to go the, the bank route or a corporate trustee route, which I actually think is a great option. One is, yes, they charge fees for what they do. Every corporate institution does. That's how they make money, right? But if you hire your friend, they're going to go out and delegate the work to an attorney, a CPA, a financial advisor. By the time you pay for all three of those things, it costs about as much as the bank. But the benefit of the bank or the corporate trustee really is that it provides a buffer between the kid and the money. And so many times we see this where, especially if, if if a child's come from a from an affluent family, they get out, they're in their 20s or 30s, and every single one of their friends is hitting them up to invest in a new restaurant deal or a new <laughs> business they're starting. And so if we've got this corporate trustee out there, they can say, look, you got to talk to the bank. I don't control this money, right? Kind of gives them a buffer and kind of protects them from themselves as well. And, and so usually what we do in like our default kind of plan is that Kids aren't going to be able to have any control over their money until they're, say, 30 or 35. At age 30, we'll let them step in and be a co-trustee of their trust, a co-manager. We're going to teach them how to use the trust for five years, and then we'll let them be in charge of their trust from that point forward. And those ages can be modified if we need to. And depending on net worth and the amount of assets in the trust, we may bump that to 40 or 45 or never, depending on the kid. If you're listening to this and, and you are maybe a, came from wealth and you have a trust and there's a restaurant deal sitting on your desk, it's probably a good idea to pass on. Yes, they that's don't right. generally work out. No. When you mentioned addiction of some type, how does that work? Because people can be addicted and then they're not addicted and maybe then they're addicted again. And you mentioned drug tests. Like, How do families usually set that up? And it doesn't even have to be around addiction. The more kids you have, there's typically... One, sometimes more that we'll call it marches to the beat of their own drum. Yeah. How do you handle situations? And I'm kind of getting away from the addiction part where you have maybe four kids, three of them pretty normal, doing normal things. Maybe there's one that's just a superstar. And then you have one that's just always kind of the the tough one. How do families handle that to where they don't let their wealth become the reason that one of their kids hates them or doesn't hate them. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it kind of gets back to that trustee role, right? And the trustee, the manager of the trust doesn't have to be the same for each of the kids. 
And so the ones that are successful and and are good stewards of money, we'll let them be in charge while we're going to put someone else in charge of the other's money. What we don't want to do is put the responsible sibling in charge of the irresponsible sibling's money because then they're just going to fight. Yeah. Right. And so, so much of this planning is looking at how do we avoid the fighting? And I think it's, it's often one of the most overlooked things in estate planning is our goal is not to just transfer money, right? It's to, to transfer money, but also a legacy and keep the family intact while doing it. And, and so I think when we're looking at, to your point, the kid that, that marches to the beat of his own drum, we want him to have the same access to money and opportunities as the highly successful kid does, right? But let's put someone else in charge and make sure the money's going to last for that child's lifetime. Yep. And that's where we can put someone else in charge of that money. That's where it'd be that corporate trustee or, or someone we really trust as a, as a friend to be in charge of that money. Like it's probably not a great idea to make the trustee, maybe the father's best friend, because that person that marches to the beat of their own drum probably has a relationship with them. It can get, even that could get hairy. That's where you're saying a corporate trustee might be a little more kind of vanilla or bland and not as most, as much emotionally swayed. Yeah. And, and going back to the flexibility piece, right? We don't want to just name a corporate trustee and the child that marches to the beat of their own drum is stuck with that bank for the rest of their life. Right. right? So we'll give that child the ability to remove that bank and find a new bank. Yeah. Maybe only once every five years or for specific reasons. So we'll give enough flexibility to where if they get a really crappy person that's that's managing the trust, they can get out of that situation. But yeah, we don't want Uncle Brian, who everyone's really close to, getting separated from the family because he was named as a trustee of of someone's trust. Okay, let's go back to to multiple kids. And now maybe we'll think about it just from like their career where you might have one child that needs more distributions than another one. How is it typically set up to where, I guess, things remain fair over the long term? How do you see families set that up? So there's kind of two situations, right? One is like when both parents pass away, right? We're going to have four separate trusts and there's four kids. And each of them may start off with their own 25% or one fourth of the of the estate. And so that way, if child one burns through their trust, they haven't impacted the other three, yeah. right? So that's one scenario is, it's kind of how do we divvy it up at the surviving parent's death? We want to create separate trust for each of the kids. But I think what you might've been asking is kind of during life, we're, we're taking care of one child more th- than the other. And there's kind of two ways to do that. I mean, one way is to, to treat it like a loan, right? And just kind of ongoing documentation of how much you're transferring to them, treat it as a loan. They can either repay it over time or when they die, that loan is kind of the asset allocated to their trust, right? So that's one option. The other option we do sometimes is treat it as what's called an, it's called an advancement on the inheritance. Okay. And so what that means is, you know, on the back of the trust or back of the will, there's a list of here's all the things we gave John over the years. And all of these things are going to be treated as a prepayment of John's inheritance. Yep. So when John dies, we start off with an equal split and then John is deducted that amount of money and it's given to his siblings. So both of those options work. And then some, some clients will say, look, we just appreciate that this child needed more and we don't want to track all these things. And so it's our money. We can do what we want with it. And we decided to take care of John 
And so you guys get what's left over. Is there anything else that comes to mind on just smart things that families have done when planning for their kids? Is there anything we left out? Yeah. So a couple of, a couple of things I've seen recently that I really liked. One is if you're charitably inclined and a lot of your listeners may have donor advised funds simply because of the income tax benefits of setting one up right in a big in a big year of liquidity if you've got that donor advised fund and and you are charitably inclined what a cool way to get the kids involved in charitable giving early on right when they get to be 12 13 14 sit down with them show them the list of charities let them pick some charities that they're passionate about and that's such a great way to create a legacy of giving if that's if that's your cup of tea Right. So that's one that I really like. On, it's not even really an estate planning tactic. It's more so of just passing that legacy of being charitably inclined on. So that's one thing I find to be really interesting. Another thing that I saw, blended families are always the most complex. When I say blended family, I'm talking about you've got a second marriage, kids from oh. prior marriages. How do we keep this whole thing together? Right. It's probably 70% of my practice just because of the divorce percentages that we had as when we were growing up. And so I have one client in particular who the step siblings all get along great and they take annual trips and they do things together. So we actually created a reunion trust in their estate plan. So when, when, when mom and dad or stepmom and stepdad pass away, there's a sum of money that goes into this trust to fund annual reunions between all the step siblings. Mm. And I thought that was a really unique way of bringing the family together still, right? Because so many times, again, with blended families, what we see is that when mom dies, the connection to mom's kids is kind of severed. And, and this family really didn't want that. They wanted everyone to still come together. And so I thought that reunion trust was a really unique idea to, to kind of keep the family together. That's interesting. This might be more just an observation, but have you seen what would otherwise have been great family units that stuck together get torn apart because they didn't plan that, that had wealth that got torn apart purely because they just didn't plan and and over time incentives in the family change and you see what otherwise could have stayed intact as a family unit kind of disband because there just wasn't a great plan for how the the money and the assets would move on yes and it almost always happens in a small family business right? Which is it's pertinent to the podcast here. Then let's go right. There. So, so many times succession planning for business gets overlooked. Estate planning, obviously everyone knows about, we all hear about it on TV. There's software programs that allege they do estate planning, but we forget about the business side of things, right? Yeah. And, and business for any business owner that's listening, that's our baby, right? And we have to plan for that business and what happens to it when we pass away or it's going to create tremendous issues. And so what I see all the time is a scenario where we've got four kids, right? Family business. And one of the kids is already actively involved in the business. The other three have nothing to do with it. Maybe they'll get involved later, but they're doing other things. And so in the estate plan, everything's split equally, right? And we've talked about succession planning, but it's really hard to think about exiting your business and, and transitioning it over to kids and all the family dynamics that that can implicate. So we just don't touch it. Well, then mom and dad die. Now all four kids own a fourth of this business. 
But son number one that's been active in the business the whole time is doing all the work. Mm. So he's disincentivized, right? Because for every dollar that he makes for the company, he's only getting 25 cents. At the same time, his siblings can outvote him on all of the business decisions that occur from a day-to-day basis. And so what ends up happening is they tend to either walk away from the business, which is usually the client's biggest asset, or they all just end up fighting and it gets, it gets thrown into court to figure out what's going to happen. And so succession planning for anyone listening, it's, it doesn't have to be something that is set in stone, but we need to plan for if you pass away today, what's the game plan? It doesn't have to be leaving it to kids. And I think that's one of the biggest frustrations I have sometimes with clients on this succession planning piece is the kids really don't want a part of the business, right? Some kids just don't want to be active in a business. They want to go do their own thing or work for, for corporate. And be an artist. Yeah, or be an artist. Yeah, <laughs> do some, some abstract paintings. <laughs> but don't just assume your kids want to inherit your business. Yeah. And sometimes the best thing you can do for your family is set up a structure where you can sell the business after you pass away or before you pass away and leave the the money to the kids to do their own thing with it, right? But you've got to think about it and you've got to plan for it. And if you don't, that's where all of the family dynamics get blown to hell, right? That's where siblings hate each other. That's where lawsuits start. We've seen a number in this town and I'm sure every other town in America where families just get ripped to shreds because a business got in the way of a family. Okay, then let's go deeper. So like what would be some smart ways to plan for this? Let's just keep going with there. There's four children, yeah. one in the business. Yes. What would you be advising? So if we've got if we've got four kids, one's active in the business and we're still several years off from retirement from the the patriarch, right? Let's put a buy sell in place that allows the son number one that's in the business to buy the business from dad and pay either the surviving parent or the siblings for the business, right? And we can structure that in a way where the cash flow of the business covers the the loan payments. And we can also peg the value of the business based on kind of a current value. So one of the situations I see a lot, and you probably see this too, is dad brings in son to the business, son is instrumental in growing the business, right? kind of a fresh new mindset, technology, all these other things that kind of come in as we move into different generations. And so son makes the business grow, you know, six or seven X. And, and so dad wants son to get the benefit of that, that growth. Well, we can actually, you know, peg values for estate planning based on evaluation this year. And that's the sales price, right? It could be a formula like, you know, so X is the percentage of the business that's still owned by dad times whatever a 1% value the business is. That's our formula for what the business is going to cost son. So son gets the benefit of all the growth after that price is locked in, but his siblings are still going to get the financial benefit, but son's going to own the business, make the decisions and get all of the continued growth of the business. Does that make sense? It does. Let's just on that last part though. Okay. So we strike, let's just say business is worth, I don't know, a hundred million dollars today. And then I, and then son goes and grows at six or seven X. How is the other three siblings treated? Are they getting paid on a hundred million or like where, where does their, how is their value calculated 
from the growth on. That's, yeah, that's it's, the part I miss. It's so it's the it's the client's judgment call. So in this example, I'm thinking of right. We just got the business valued, and it was valued at seven million. So a lot smaller than 100 million. Okay, so it's a smaller business. Sun's been in the business for five years and already contributed to the growth. So we're gifting the Sun 10% of the business today for the past efforts. And then we locked in the purchase price of $7 million, right? $7 million equates to 100% of the business. Sun's only going to pay whatever is remaining that he doesn't already own. So, so let's say dad dies and he, he buys out that interest. His siblings get the benefit of getting one-third of the loan payments, right, that are made on that sale. So that's what uh, they're getting is they're getting that the payout trickles down so that that loan is an asset to the estate. And so it gets funneled down to the siblings eventually. And that's what they get. They get the payout as if dad had sold the business to a third party. So essentially from seven million on, that's all going to the sun. Right. Because we've locked in this purchase price. And okay. Do you have something else to say? Yeah. I was just going to say that there are some tax consequences that you have to think through anytime you peg a purchase price yeah, because it, it's not fair market value necessarily 10 years from now. Right. So it's, so there, it, it gets more nuanced. That's way beyond the scope of what we're talking about today. I just didn't want people to be listening and think, well, you idiot, that's going to cause all kinds of tax problems. In this scenario, we're aware of the tax issues and still prefer to do it this way. What are the tax issues or is that too dense to go through? Yeah. So, so the tax issues you get one is there's, so if you buy the, if you buy the asset for a lower price and fair market value, then your basis starting point is going to be lower. So it could be a long-term capital gains issue. Got it. Right. That's one. And then just whether or not the IRS will respect the valuation from an estate tax perspective. Got it. So those are just very generically, those are some of the issues that come up. There could be some biases to value this low so that it meets some threshold to transfer that there's not a tax. Right. Uh, okay. I don't know if I said that right. I tried to say that right. I'm assuming, let's just kind of keep going on this. Mm -hmm. The father probably consulted with the other siblings that were getting bought out and said, hey, you're not interested in the business. You know, John, our son is is and he's been working here and i'm going to sell it to him and they i'm a, and again i know every family's differently but you might consult the other siblings to let them know what's going on they're not just told at thanksgiving dinner hey you've sold the business to your brother and this is what you're getting like how does that usually play out this is this is universally true throughout. because you're kind of a psychologist as well as i spend a, more of my time in uh, <laughs> as a counselor yeah, as a, a counselor, counselor. It's, it's universally true throughout estate planning, especially when you're doing things that might be perceived as unfair. Yeah. Which in the business context, like we're talking about, certainly that could be perceived as unfair. Yeah. Right. So I almost require my clients to have that conversation before we move forward with the plan. And it, it goes back to that harmony among siblings. Right. If if dad and sometimes even mom's involved in that, right, because like even though it's dad's business, mom has played an integral part in the business by raising the kids and, and, and doing all the things that that encompasses. And so dad and mom need to sit down with the kids and explain the why. This is why I've decided to do it this way. And this is why I set the price the way it is. And this is the benefit you're going to get from all the hard work that I you know, put in over the years. And what that does is when it gives the siblings a chance to get really ticked off at dad, 
right? If they want to be, be mad at dad or mom, they can be mad, be angry. They can skip Thanksgiving dinner if they want to for a while. But when dad and mom die, it's not really justified to be angry at the sibling, right? Because mom and dad explained it to them why they did it, their reasoning behind it. And so our hope is, it, it's never foolproof, but the hope is that by getting out in front of it today, we're increasing the chance that the siblings can continue a good relationship after the parents are gone. But that's true throughout estate planning. Anytime something's not equal, we almost always do a document called a statement of wishes. It's a letter from mom and dad to the kid saying, here's why we did it this way, right? And sometimes clients will give that to their kids while they're alive. Other times they wait until death, but either way, we're giving that to them as a letter from the grave saying, here's why we did it this way. We love all of you equally. We had to make some hard decisions. This is what we decided on. And we hope that you guys will still get together and love each other and keep our family legacy going, right? And, and again, so, so, so all of that is not foolproof, but the hope is that it shifts the anger to the proper party, right? Yeah, right. Shifts it to the person that should take the blame for making the tough decision. And in those conversations, and, and again, maybe it's just a situation by situation, are you participating in that conversation or is there somebody you recommend that is like a third party to the conversation? Most yeah. fathers or mothers that own businesses aren't equipped to then have this conversation. Yeah. And, you know, I, so it's not emotional. And, it, you know, it was incredible. The example I've been kind of using throughout this, it's a great family I've been, been working with for seven or eight years now, extremely close family, extremely religious. And they had this conversation and there wasn't a dry eye on that Zoom call. Wow. Like, I was crying, just <laughs> seeing the emotion of the family. And they all said, yes, this sibling deserved the business that they were. So it was just this awesome feeling, things you don't see usually because everything blows up on my end of the world. That's when I get involved usually, right? So cool to see that happen. And so so I participated in that client's kind of family conference about it. I have another client, though, who's got similar size business, construction business, and he's got one or two sons that are actively involved in the business, two girls that have nothing to do with the business. And the sons are taking over the business together and extremely different personalities, great kids, but just one is a go-getter, one's more laid back. And, and dad's really worried about how this is going to play out when he leaves. And so he actually went to a religious counselor and did family counseling with the kids to see if they were going to be able to make it work. So in that scenario, I, I was not involved at all. And then there are also some, some business succession planners out there. I've had kind of not so great experience with them because they get a certification, but it doesn't really have a practical requirement to it. It's just studying for a test. And I think you need experience dealing with these family issues to be able to resolve them. So I guess my answer is there's no yeah. one approach that works best. But I do think that sometimes the attorney can provide some insight from the standpoint of why it's structured a certain way. I think Counselors can provide the family kumbaya of like, dad still loves you guys. And if you have some, some hidden feelings, let's let them out now. Right. So it, it, it's so funny how it shifts from legal to counseling and, and more so quick, but 
But it, it really is so important to address it during life and not wait until you pass away. If you have a profitable business, and it doesn't even matter if there's a son or daughter working in it or not, but is there, but you know, you know, it's not going to, the business isn't going to be sold. It's going to be inherited by is, and, and is there something that you should be doing to restructure how it moves to the next generation? Should you look at your LLC docs? Should you look at your S corp docs? If you know that I'm not selling the business and it's going to be either inherited by my kids or there's a plan for it post my death, what things from a, just a pure legal standpoint or structure standpoint are valuable, if any? Yeah. So definitely need to look at the company agreement or bylaws or partnership agreement, whatever type of entity it is. We need to look at that. And the key thing we're looking at is who can make the decisions on a day-to-day basis if something happens to dad, right? Because it's oftentimes dad's been the sole owner. His company agreement doesn't really, it doesn't matter who makes decisions because he's the sole person in charge. But when we get a multiple owner situation, we can't have deadlock in the business, right? That's not good for anybody. And so we need to have either a board that makes decisions together. We need to have a succession of people that are in charge and kind of its rank and file. We need some sort of governance structure in place. And the second thing that we need to look at in that company agreement is how are we going to compensate the beneficiaries, the kids that are actively involved in the business to motivate them to keep doing well, right? So from a company agreement, kind of operating agreement standpoint, that's a necessity. Yeah, I think separately looking at the tax structure. So if it's an S corp, for example, when the sole shareholder passes away, if it goes into trust, there's certain types of elections that have to be made. So you don't break the S corp status, which is a big deal to most of us that have an S corp. If it's a disregarded LLC and it's a pass-through entity, then it may become a partnership, right? When the patriarch dies and it goes to the kids. The other thing is how are we going to address spouses in the future, right? So if, if, if four kids inherit the business and one of them gets divorced, we want to make sure that the business doesn't get passed over to that spouse, right? And so we may want spousal protections in there where the business is required to buy back that interest or the child that got divorced is required to buy back the interest to keep all of the business and the family and, and not going to outsiders. All right. You brought up a hot topic. <laughs> this wasn't in my notes, but we got to hit on this. Yeah. And we and we've been talking a lot about the kids. Obviously, if if the patriarch dies and the matriarch's still around, or vice versa, it goes to them first. But we're kind of that's an obvious. I think the kids is where it gets a little more interesting and what people probably plan for more. Yeah. But you mentioned kid goes and marries a bonehead, a ding yeah. dong. We don't like him, or he is a threat, or he's just. It's clear he's not going to add value to the situation. So maybe Susie, we love her to death. She's amazing. Everything was planned for. And then she marries this bonehead. How might you change documents to account for loose cannon now entering the family? Yeah. That's not part of the technical blood right. family. So, and this is a, an important concept for any of the listeners that are in Texas. And so I'm going to get on a little soapbox for just a couple seconds here. So, So many people in Texas think if I own something before marriage, it's my separate property, end of story, 
the growth on it, the changes in it, everything's separate property from that point forward. Yep. It's just simply not that clean cut. Okay. Right. Income on separate property is community property. The growth and value on separate property is separate property. Why does all that stuff matter? Because a court can divvy up community property however it wants. It doesn't have to be 50-50. A court can't divvy up separate property. It has to be given to the person that it owns. So if you owned a business before marriage and you've been married for 20 years, a portion of that business is very likely going to be community property. So it's not separate property despite what you read online on Google and it creates a bunch of issues. Okay. So that's just kind of one comment. And the reason I say that is that's why prenups and marital agreements are so important. So the first thing I'm going to do when my daughter Gigi marries the bonehead is I'm going to strengthen the provisions of the prenup requirement in my trust. Okay. Right. Because I want the equity that goes into her trust to be governed by that prenup requirement. Okay. Okay. So that's my estate planning angle to okay. protect it. The second side of it is I'm going to go into the company agreements for my businesses, right? And I'm going to basically require that for Gigi to become a member of Baker Heath Properties, right? That her spouse has to sign off uh, on a spousal consent, which says that this is separate property and that there's ever a divorce. And for some reason, a court would award bonehead ex-spouse some interest. We get the right to buy it back for a dollar, right? Or something, some sort of figure. So we're going to make sure we keep that business separate. The other thing we may need to look at, and, and this is probably relevant perhaps to you, Chris, and just and all the businesses you've been involved in, is we may want to consider not letting Gigi, in my scenario, be a manager of that business because we know her bonehead spouse is going to be in her ear trying to tell her how to run the business, trying to tell her how to do everything. And that may interfere with the success of the business, the potential success of the business. So a lot of times that's what we end up seeing is it's not a spouse, it's not a divorce situation. It's that we've got four kids and one crazy daughter-in-law or son-in-law, and that crazy in-law is barking in the spouse's ear and our child's ear and, and causing all sorts of problems that otherwise wouldn't exist. And so when we've got a spouse like that, we may want to remove that child that's married to that spouse out of the management equation just to, to ensure we can keep growing the business. Yeah. Something that came to mind, I was on a, a guy, wonderful guy, Mike Boyd, that's got a podcast called The Business of Family. And he interviews not he interviews families that have had like dynasty businesses transferred to fourth, fifth, sixth generations. And basically they've made their family a business, the hierarchy and how it works. And yeah. He had just mentioned something. I, I had asked him a similar question, like, what are just some interesting things you've seen along the way? He's like, one family has something to where if it's something, I'm going to botch it a little bit, but if like one of your kids are married and they, one of this one, either the husband or the wife, doesn't matter if it's your kid or not moves out of the house where there's begins a separation like immediately that child is removed from the trust or the the will or every or whatever it is until it's either been remediated or or until something's done like within 24 hours if you know that Susie and John have split up there's like a mechanism in place Boom. and they are like put in the penalty box yeah. until <laughs> further notice which yeah. I thought was interesting yeah no I I love that. And and the other successful family businesses that I've seen, 
there's a lot like in the Northwest, the Northeast that are seafood companies and things like that, right? That have just been around forever. And, and they do kind of a, if you're a, if you're a descendant, so a blood descendant of the, the, the original patriarch, right? You get gifted a really small amount of shares every year, right? And so as time goes on, you build up your shares. And then as your parents die, you inherit more. And they were, so it's real strict about the prenup requirements. It's really strict about like maintaining a certain faith even, and that you have to tithe a certain amount of your distributions every year. I mean, really detailed family governance structures. Yeah, And and you can get really detailed. I mean, you've seen, and I've definitely seen with family ranches, right? I mean, kind of moving away from business, although a ranch yeah. can be a business in itself. Oh, yeah. How do we govern use of the ranch, right? How do we make sure people don't start carving it up and selling off small pieces? And how do we use the ranch for the intended purpose, right? Oh, yeah. Which might not be all oil and gas. It might be hunting or, or you know, ag or solar power. I'm heading to a ranch this afternoon with some of my buddies, and it's a big ranch and won't give too much detail, but I think there was something along the lines of this was a big decision to make. Yeah. Lots of kids, lots of grandkids. Yeah. And so. they'll have like a constant family constitution that governs it all. Yep. On the topic of, you know, the, the ranch and, 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 and we've kind of moved on to small business, wealthy families. Let's, I don't, I'm going to ask the question, what are things that you might do differently if you're worth a million versus 10 million versus a hundred million versus a billion? You kind of know what I'm saying? Like, what are some things that kind of progress over time? We can talk about slats. I think it was bidgets. I mean, just things yeah. that become pertinent to you at certain levels of wealth. Yeah. So I think, you know, anything, I would say 5 million and below, we're probably talking primarily about just doing the core planning. So the six documents that we talked about earlier that we'll have linked in the show notes, plus maybe that trust, right? The revocable trust, just to give some protection if you pass away, delay the kid's access to money. I think the exception I would say is age is always a factor in the net worth, right? If you've got a young person at 5 million, a lot different from an 80 year old at 5 million just right. because of the growth potential. Right. But when we get to the 10 million range, I'd say in the five to $10 million range, we're probably going to be looking at the same foundational documents, the six plus the, the revocable trust, but we're probably going to start talking about at a minimum doing annual gifting to the kids, right? So every year, the IRS gives us a certain amount that we can give to as many people in the world as we want. I use Oprah as an example. I can give a certain dollar amount to everyone in this room, right? Everyone in the world. And it doesn't have any adverse tax consequences to me when I die. And that number this year is $17,000, right? So between my wife and I collectively, we can give $34,000 to as many people in the world as we want. That's my hypothetical. And if so you're doing that since, yeah, since I'm your way, maybe Johnny, sure Johnny wants some. them too. I, I've got to go grow some more, print some more first. <laughs> so, but at a minimum, when you get to that 10 million mark or 5 million mark, we probably want to start talking about the low hanging fruit, which is okay. the ability to gift that $34,000 if you're married or $17,000 to each of your kids. Okay. Right. It can be outright or you can gift it into a trust. That's where that gift trust idea about GG that I talked about earlier comes into play. So that's kind of the first step that I usually would approach with someone in the five to 10 million range. 
when you get above 10, you start getting in like the 10 to 20 million range. Then we're talking about really some more advanced tax planning. And that's where that slat comes into play. But ultimately, to simplify it a little bit, but also to cover some political environment, I guess, kind of where we are. So this year for 2023, you can give away during life or die with a combined $12.92 million. If you're married, you can actually combine those. So it's $25.84 million. I hope my math's correct there. On top of that $12.92 million that I can give away during life or die with, I also have that $17,000 that I can give away each year, right? That's not subject to tax. And that $12.92 million number we have, it's the highest we've ever had with the exception of one year, which I think was 2010, where there was no exemption in place. It was the greatest year to die if you were a billionaire. And we already know that this 12.92 figure, which is indexed for inflation, so it goes up each year. It's been climbing pretty largely the last couple of years. It's set to go back down and be cut roughly in half at the end of 2025. So, so Trump's tax plan passed this doubling of the exemption. It went from 5 million to 10 million index for inflation. That's why it's at 12.92 million now. But he didn't have the votes to make it permanent. So it sunsets at the end of 2025. When that happens on January 1st of, you know, at the end of that, January 1st, the exemption is going to go back down to, we think, about $7 million per person. So you had $12.92 million that you could die with this year. You're losing roughly $5.92 million of that exemption, right? For folks that are in that 10 to 20 million and up net worth range, we want to use as much of your $12.92 million as we can before it goes down to $7 million. And the reason for that is the IRS has said, if you use all of your $12.92 million exemption and then we reduce it down to seven, we're not going to go back and tax the difference. You took advantage of it while it was higher. Good for you. You seize this window of opportunity, right? So if we've got folks that are in the 10 to 20 million net worth range, really a little bit higher is even better. We may be making a gift of $12 million to a trust for the benefit of a spouse and then kids. That's a slap, right? So that's one option that a lot of folks use. I, I think it's a relatively easy to understand option. Lastly, what I would say before we get super complex is when folks get above 25 million and they've got a lot of different business interests, which I know I suspect a lot of your listeners have, they've got you know different entities that do different investments and in real estate, that's when the FLP, the family limited partnership structure, a lot of times makes sense. And so the idea is just we, we take a lot of the various business entities you have, we roll them into a family limited partnership structure. So it kind of centralizes and puts all the entities in one basket, centralizes the management over them. And when you gift those interests to a spouse or kids or trust, the value is not 100% of the value of everything in it. You get some discounts for lack of control, lack of marketability, things like that. And so 
So I would say the family limited partnership is kind of an add-on to the rest of the planning we've talked about, the gift trust, the SLAT, and the core six documents plus the revocable trust. And there's a million other types of trust out there, right? But those are just the ones to me that make the most sense. And I, I think when I was looking at the comments to your to your post the other day, one of the questions like, how do we balance all this, like the money and the kids and what to do? One thing I wanted to stress is, is that not everyone wants to save every single penny they can on taxes, right? I think on one end of the continuum, we've got- Yeah, not everybody on earth is optimizing for- Tax benefits only, yeah. right? On one end of the spectrum, we've got, I want to pay zero estate tax, right? When I die, we can do that. You're going to give a lot of money to charity probably. And you're probably not going to be aware of that before you come meet with me. But that's one end of the spectrum, right? Is that I want to pay zero or as little estate tax as possible. Well, if you're on that end of the spectrum, guess what? Your life is going to be tremendously more complicated than someone on the other end of the spectrum I'm getting ready to talk about, right? So the more that you try to achieve tax savings, the more complicated your life necessarily gets in trying to achieve those goals. The other end of the spectrum is, look, I don't need my kids to receive every dollar that I've built, right? So maybe I'm fine with each kid getting $1 million, $5 million, $10 million, right? Whatever that number is for your family. Let's set up... A a plan that leaves them that amount of money. And then everything else just falls into place. But this allows for simplicity, right? Because we've just set up a dollar amount we want to leave the kids. We can build a plan that achieves that goal. And then if the kids can't make it off of $10 million, right, with investments and, and growth on the assets, then that's on them. And so I think for any person listening to this podcast, finding the balance between Tax savings and simplicity is what I try to go for, right? We can get really complicated, but you're not going to know how to administer and run all these things. You need a family office to be able to take care of these things for you, right? So let's try to find the balance between achieving all your objectives, getting as much money to the kids as possible, but also keeping the plan simple to where you can actually understand what you have in place. The note I have is I'm calling it money by surprise. And you kind of came with when you said, you know, if you're 80 years old and you have 5 million, you kind of know what you got. But in business and and sometimes assets, I mean, if you had owned minerals in the Eagleford Shale in 08, maybe you thought you were worth a million bucks and, you know, you found out six months later you were worth 100 million all of a sudden. Or you have a business and it's chugging along and all of a sudden maybe one of your patents becomes worth a gajillion or I never thought I'd sell my business, but now we're going to sell it. The question is, are there things, and, and to be fair, and we won't have to go into detail, there was something that happened in my life in 2021 that was like a little unexpected. And I remember everybody was like, oh, you, 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 know, you, sh you should do this or you know, get your assets in this as quickly as possible or whatever it was. It was like, I wish I had known this before. And obviously this is the underlying surprise. What do you do in situations where you don't think you've got a lot and all of a sudden the market moves or something happens and all of a sudden what you thought might have been a lot became way, way, way more? Yeah. Is there stuff to do? Yeah. So it's 
right? There's kind of like levels to the surprise, right? I yeah. mean, sometimes you've built a successful business, you think it's worth a lot, and then you get approached and the offer is a lot more than what you thought, right? right? In that sort of scenario, you know, getting an, a, a good estate planning attorney is on the line as soon as you can before the liquidity event happens, right? That's key. And the reason is we can get a business appraised with discounts and all these other things for a lot less than what it's typically going to be sold for. Yeah. But once we have that LOI signed and there's a contract on it for a fixed price, it becomes much harder to justify that lower value, right? And, and that seems counterintuitive. So I guess let me just say that from an estate planning perspective, we want everything valued as low as possible, right? So it's a kind of a counterintuitive shift in thinking because we usually want everything to be shown as valuable as it can be, unless you're trying to get a, you know, a real estate appraisal for something. But so, so that's one thing to keep in mind, right? Is we want low values. And so if we know that there's getting ready to be an exit or a liquidity event, get out ahead of it before you get the money. Yeah. That's, that's the number one key. Now, if there's a huge surprise, right? And, and to your point with like oil and gas, right? In that scenario, you're just going to have to do an FLP and take discounts where you can get them and, and just adapt afterwards. But what I would caution people against is the surprise happens. You get the information about the potential tax liability, the estate tax liability, and you call a law firm. They put up this tremendous plan and they tell you what it costs and it's a drop in the bucket compared to what you're going to save in the long run. I sometimes tell clients to step back and look at this for a second. Take a deep breath and make sure, do you want to do this, right? A really good example, if we have time just for a short story, there's a, a, a pharmaceutical company that has been raising equity for a while, and they, they took in a lot of folks who were very blue-collar, lower- or middle-class citizens for investors. It's neither here nor there whether they were accredited, not getting into that, but ultimately... We have people that their net worth is $100,000 and it's getting ready to be 20 million, right? <laughs> Damn. And so I'm getting calls from all of these investors in this deal and they're saying, hey, you know, we want to set up all these complicated trusts and save taxes. I'm like, you don't, don't even have enough money yet to really enjoy it. Like, yes, you may owe a million, $2 million in estate taxes, but don't you want to have access to this money and be able to enjoy it, right? Instead of just giving it all to a trust and losing access and control to it. So I think you've always got to just sit back for a second, listen to your attorney, but also think through, like, do I want to part with control or access to these assets? Because anything that we're talking about, Chris, on tax savings, you're either separating and losing control or you're losing the financial benefit of it, right? That's the trade-off for getting a tax savings. And so I would just caution people to reach out quickly. Don't wait to reach out. But then digest it and make sure, are you going to be okay with the idea that you may not have access or control over these funds anymore? Okay. I want to circle back real quick to something that I missed on the family. And then I want to go back to folks over 25 million where you're going to be inheriting more than what's kind of tax-free. But on the family side, I've heard people say, you know, you don't want to write the will such that even though the the father and mother are dead. It's, it's it's almost like they're still alive. They're still making decisions along yeah. the way. But have you seen anything in family estate planning where, 
look, maybe the parents died early and the kids were young where they set up things that like if different milestones might be achieved in their lives, like the will or the trusts kind of change what they're capable of doing. Again, I've heard people say like, you don't want to keep making decisions for your kids post you're gone. But then I've also heard of some things where things get interesting if the kids are do something incredible to where where I thought the trust would work like this and ended up working like this. Yeah. Do you see that? Yeah, I've seen it. So what you're referring to is what we call dead hand control, okay. right? Controlling from the grave. Yeah. And and there is kind of a, a stigma on it. And I would say that you got to strike a balance, right? Yeah. You can't anticipate every single scenario that's going to happen in a person's life. But what I have seen are those milestone type structures where we say, look, if you graduate college, right? We're going to make an, a special distribution to buy you a house, right? If you get a graduate degree, we're going to give you, you know, a hundred thousand dollars and we're going to pay your tuition for it. I've seen things like that, that I've found really interesting. I've also had conversations with a client right now. We're kind of having ongoing conversations about this, about maybe doing a match on income, saying that we'll match your income dollar for dollar from the trust, right? But if you get to say ninety thousand or a hundred thousand dollars a year, then we're going to match it at one point two five. If you get to one fifty or two hundred a year, we're going to pay you one and a half times. Interesting. And so, trying to dangle the, the, the carrot instead of the stick to say, if you end up doing these things, you're going to get bigger distributions. Now, the flip side of that is your kid may be a really passionate person that wants to be a teacher, and that just may not be attainable, right? Yeah. And so, then does it feel like a stick? when it was intended to be a carrot. Yeah. There's always that risk. But I think that as the kids get older, you can kind of modify your plans to incentivize them to to do better and incentivize them from a monetary perspective. Have you ever seen somebody incentivize their kids just to be like great kids that are friendly, kind, generous, like you can't monetarily measure it? Yeah, I think I think where that gets hard is just how do you police it? Yeah. Right. And, and I think that's where, when we do that statement of wishes in the trust document, we put in provisions about the intent, right? So like one of the, the things I put in my trust is that traditionally you're kind of restricted on what you can take distributions from the trust for things like health, maintenance, support, kind of maintaining a standard of living. But I put a provision in my trust that says, look, if, if, if you want broader access to the trust than just maintaining a standard of living. You've either got to be working full-time, staying at home to raise a family, or volunteering for charity. If you're doing those things, then in those scenarios, we'll give you access to the trust beyond just maintaining your standard of living. Got it. Right? So there's ways we can incentivize through the document. That's where I think being more broad and generic is a better option potentially than having a dead hand control with all these specific rules laid out because we just don't know, right. right? It may not be worth going to college and getting a graduate degree in 10 years. We just don't know what it's going to look like. And so we kind of lose flexibility. I'd have to imagine there's probably people that pass away, their kids love them. And then as time goes by and they live by the trust, like, they start like disliking their parents after they're gone. Yeah, That's got to be a tough situation. All right, over 25 million or let's just call it at a hundred million or something to where the assets are moving to your children or to whomever, but they're way above the threshold of what goes tax-free. Then what do people start doing? Yeah. So 
in that scenario, the the key for now, if you've done nothing, right? If you've done nothing, you need to use all of your state tax exemption, right? Like today, yeah. right? Or at least over this year and next year, there's some benefits to kind of staggering things out. But we want to use all of the combined, if you're married, 25.84 million. Then there are some other things you can do, but really your strategy is more so you've used all your exemption, right? And so unless you want to leave things to charity, whatever you have left and the growth on it's going to be subject to a state tax, right? That's just kind of where you are. And so the goal at that point is to shift the growth of assets outside of your estate. And so you can do things like sell assets to a trust you've created pay yourself back a note alone, right? But the growth of those assets you sold to the trust is outside of your estate. There are things like GRATs, which is a grantor retained annuity trust. So you put things into this GRAT, it pays you an annuity back over two years. So it basically pays you the amount you put in, but all the growth goes into this trust that's outside of your estate. The GRATs are what, from my understanding, what a lot of the big tech guys did to shift billions of dollars out of their estate. Right. They would set up these grats for two years. It's a, a two year, a two year term for the annuity. So I put in $30 million of I, cash or of stock, whatever you want, but you want it to appreciate quickly. So if you're going to do cash, you need to get invested and it's got to surpass a hurdle rate. Right. Right now, that hurdle rate's a lot higher than it was last year. It's about 4% where it was 0.6% okay. last year. But if I put in $30 million into this grat, I pay myself back the $30 million plus some interest, right? So anything above that goes into this trust outside of my state. And it's only for a two-year term. So every two years, you do a new one. You do a new one. They call it rolling grats. And so if you Google search rolling grats, you'll see some Forbes articles and things like that. That's like the, it's not the most advanced because it's actually a pretty easy strategy, but that's what you're doing because the goal is to shift all of the future growth out of your estate. It's called an estate tax freeze strategy. Okay. All right. A lot of folks on here own real estate. Oftentimes you see families that have owned it so long it's depreciated to zero. Yeah. Anything that comes to mind on how to transfer real estate amongst generations, it's different from something we've talked about. Yeah. So if, if you're, if you're one of the fortunate folks that either doesn't have an estate tax problem or you have an estate tax problem that's so great that you can only pick and choose certain things to get out of your estate. Land, just by its nature, because it is passed on, tends to have very low basis, right, for income tax, capital gains reasons. But so we typically want that land to be included in the person's estate when they die. So gifting it when grandpa is 80, bad idea. Let grandpa die first and then pass it to you and his will. The reason for that is that that land gets a new starting point for capital gains purposes. It's called a step up in income tax basis at death. Okay. So when we're doing planning, if you don't have an estate tax problem, then we want everything to get a step up in basis, Okay. right? If you do have an estate tax problem, we may not want to fund those irrevocable trusts with land that has a zero basis. We may want to put other things in there. Right. And keep the land in your estate so it gets a basis adjustment. Got it. So that's that's the big piece there. And then setting up similar structures like we talked about earlier, family government structures for like FLPs, 
it's all those sort of things also come into play. Is that kind of more what you're asking about is the, yeah. yeah. So anytime you own land really should not be in your personal name. You, they're going to want to use, except for your primary house, right? You're usually going to want your land in an LLC, some sort of entity from an asset protection standpoint. What about an industrial building? Is that different than land? Industrial, I would treat any real estate, really. You're calling land, yeah. Yeah. Okay, got it. Yeah. I would say any surface real estate should really be in some sort of business entity. Okay. There's art to whether you do a new LLC or or partnership for every single thing you buy or if you put them into buckets. But just from a liability protection standpoint, it makes sense to have real estate in an LLC or some sort of business entity. Can you move real estate to a trust without having mortgage holders call the loan? Can you, you can move your primary residence. So your primary residence is exempt under okay. a federal law. Okay. okay. When you get to secondary residences or commercial real estate, things like that, technically speaking, the transfer to an LLC or a trust would trigger the dual on sale clause, right? My, so I've never seen it happen in the 12 years I've been practicing t 10 years, whatever it is. My mentor who's been practicing for 30 something years has never seen it happen. And so when interest rates were really low, we're like, yeah, if, if they call the note, we'll just refinance it. Right. Not a big deal. Right now it's a little bit different because we've got folks that have 2% interest rates and they don't want to risk triggering that problem. And so for those people, we're usually asking the bank if they will approve it, approve the, the transfer. And some, some have, they have no issue. They haven't changed the interest rate. They've just approved it as long as we had certain provisions in the documents. Okay. But if you're, if you're trying to avoid probate, which is that court process when you pass away uh, uh, on a piece of land, there's actually an alternative to transferring it to the trust during your life. So we now have something called a transfer on death deed that you file in the property records. And it says, when I die, the property goes into this trust and it's not effective until I die. And so because of that, it doesn't trigger the due on sale provisions. Okay, this is a Twitter comment. I think you read it. The explanation of strategy ultra high net worth families use to transfer real estate held in LLCs using loans at the IRS minimum interest rate to finance heirs to buy more percentage of the LLC each year, plus a discussion of the lack of control discount. <laughs> yeah. So let's try to we can just digest that a little bit. Yeah. It, it's all kind of one general strategy, right? So I talked about earlier that parents can give $17,000 to each, right? So 34 collectively to each of their kids every year, at least for this year, that's our number. And so one strategy you see a lot of times is parents have, so let's make it simple. Let's say son wants to go out and buy a house and doesn't want to get bank financing, right? Well, mom and dad can loan the money to the child. and the interest rate that has to be charged. So you can't charge 0% interest. The IRS won't respect that. And so they set what's called the AFR rate. It's called the applicable federal rate, 75-20 rate. It's got some different names. Again, that number was like 0.6 a year and a half ago. Now it's 4%, right? So it's not near as sexy as it was a few years ago. But the idea is that you can loan your child the money to buy the house, right? Child pays back the, the interest and the principal or however you structure it. 
And the parent has the ability, as long as it's not a prearranged plan, to forgive up to $34,000 worth of interest every year, mm. right? As long as they've made no other gifts. And so if you take that simple example of buying a primary residence and then kind of shifted gears to say you had an FLP that the parents owned, they were selling FLP interest down to the kids, the same concept applies, right? Which is you are loaning money to a child, they're repaying you at a lower rate than what banks charge. And the added benefit of the FLP is that you can get discounts on the value of the asset that you're making selling or loaning. I got it. Okay. Did that make any sense at all? Or did I just lose? <laughs> I mean, it's a, it look, it's complicated. Yeah. I think I'd have to ask you like 10 more follow-ups, but it sets, I, it, I, I understand at a high level what it means. Yeah. If I was to go do that tomorrow, I would be calling you going, help yeah. me set this up. I think the key is right. Is that you're able to loan money to your kids at a lower interest rate than they would get in the, in the general public. Yeah. That's the idea. And then you can forgive their interest And you can payments. forgive so as long as it's not prearranged. That's the big thing is you can't like, like everybody can't agree. We're not going to charge you this interest. If you do that, the IRS will say it's not legit. Yeah. Wink. <laughs> I bet there's a lot of winking in the state. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm going to bring it home on a, a topic that you sent me, but this relates to a lot of folks, even what we do in real estate, private equity, but there are a lot of private equity listeners. And you wrote a comment. You said using trusts in private equity investments discuss, or let's talk about what you wanted to discuss there and why it might be applicable to some of the people listening. Yeah. So I just think that for, for folks that do potentially have an estate tax problem on the horizon, right? I think investing with a trust makes a lot of sense. And the trusts we're talking about here are irrevocable trust, right? So I know a lot of forts deals, what I recall, tend to have really good multiples as far as returns. I would say the vast majority of investments we make that are outside of stocks and bonds tend to have pretty good returns, right? And, and so if we're investing with a trust, the benefit is the assets in that trust are protected from lawsuits, protected from creditors, right? So we're building a nest egg of protected assets. And, and so I'll give the example of the, the slat, right? Where I create a trust for Lorna's benefit and then when Lorna dies, or if we get divorced, it goes down to Gigi, right? We're not getting divorced, honey, if you're listening. <laughs> I'm just throwing out an example. In that sort of scenario, Lorna could be in charge of the trust as trustee, and she can make all the investment decisions. And so she can choose which fort deals to invest in or, or outside deals to invest in. When the deal pops, right? So when the liquidity event happens, the money goes into the trust. It's outside of our estate for estate tax reasons. It's protected from lawsuits. So if I'm sued for malpractice, right, that trust foreseeably should be protected from that lawsuit. If I'm in a car accident, it should also be protected, right? And, and then the money can turn around and be invested again and again and again and again. And so I think for folks like you and I, and I suspect a lot of our listeners, the, the money benefit obviously is great with investing, but it's more so fun doing the deal and seeing it come to fruition, right? Right. And with an irrevocable trust like a slat, you can actually still have that benefit of making the investment decision, seeing it pop, seeing the growth happen in this trust, but it's all protected. And usually you don't get that protection, right? If it goes into a bank, a bank account or a savings account or stocks and bonds, 
If you get in a car accident and sued, they may be able to reach that money. It's in a trust that'll be protected. And the trust has better protection generally. Irrevocable trust have better protection than LLCs. You had one more comment. You said this could be dense. Yeah. And so if you're listening to this, get your pen out. But you said, and I've never heard of this, vertical slicing for fund managers. Yeah. What does that mean? Yeah. So if we think about anyone that's a general partner or has a carried interest in the fund, how great would it be after everything I've talked about today to just gift the carried interest to a trust, yeah. right? Values essentially zero. That's what we always tell ourselves. The growth potential is tremendous. And that's where a lot of our state tax problems could come in the future. So why don't we just all today, we'll, we'll leave here, we'll call, we'll call Ryan, he'll set up these cool trusts, we'll gift all of our carries into it, and we're going to save millions in estate taxes. Well, the IRS is a little smarter than that, right? Sometimes at least. And so what they basically said is, is first off, a carried interest has to have a value. It can't be zero. And if you, if you put a $0 valuation on it, you're going to get audited, no doubt about it. So you got to put some number on there. But, but where the IRS had some heartburn was, okay, you gave your carry away, but you kept the other interest, right? Maybe your class A and class B interest you kept. And, and so what the IRS basically said is you, you can't do that anymore. You can't just gift your carry. What you've got to do is a vertical slice of all of the ownership you have in this entity into the trust. Okay. So I can't gift, I, I can't gift my carry, but I can gift an equal, say 25% of my class A, class B, and if C's the carry, the class C interest. So you're taking a vertical slice of the pie and gifting it to a trust. Got it. Not as sexy or appealing, right? But there's still a tremendous upside to it. Yeah. And, and so I think for folks that have carried interest, one, be aware that you cannot simply gift your carried interest alone. And carried interest have a lot of different phrases or terminology used for them. I use carried as just the general idea Promote. that, right. The idea here is that it pays disproportionately to what you put in, right? right? I mean, that's the idea here. I think when you have a, a carried interest, you need to be aware of this vertical slicing strategy. And to simplify it even more, here's what I would say I typically do. If, if a client's got various interests in, in a private equity fund, some of which are carries, we're going to put all of those interests into an LLC. So the LLC owns all of the investments in that deal. From there, we can then gift whatever percentage of the LLC we want into a trust, and it's automatically vertically sliced, right? So I just wanted to mention that because I do think I get a lot of calls from clients, especially in the oil and gas space. You can understand why. It's, it's probably the same in, in private equity real estate too, but it's just the potential is tremendous. And they just want to give the carries. And it's like, well, we can't just do that. But there is this option out here, which is not quite as sexy, but it's still got a, a big upside benefit. All right, man. This has been awesome. I look forward to continue working with you over the years. Yeah. If somebody has a question or wants to reach out or maybe do some work, how would they get in touch with you? Yeah, you can give me a call. I'll drop my number in the in the show notes. Give me an email. It's just ryan at bakerheath.com. 
and love to catch up with you. We're also happy to review anyone's estate planning documents. We typically don't charge for that unless you've got seven binders, <laughs> but we're happy to look at it, make suggestions for any of you Texas listeners here on the call. Thanks so much. Yep. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Fort Podcast. Be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform or hop on over to YouTube to watch full video episodes if that's what you prefer. For more information, you can check out thefortpod.com. 